special. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I cover brand new films out in the theaters. And you can check all that out at my website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the first part of a three-part series. I just reviewed, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I don't, know, I don't even know anymore. I reviewed a lot of films that were based off of TV shows for the last several episodes, but the next trilogy is going to be TV films that are based on theatrical releases, so going from movies to TV instead of the other way around in this case, but specifically ones done for the Star Wars franchise. And the first film I'm going to be getting into this trilogy is actually not from the 1980s, and it's not associated with the other two, but I decided to throw it in here anyway because I already covered the Star Wars films in my first trilogy for this podcast. From 1978, it's the Star Wars Holiday Special. Yes, made for TV, CBS in 1978. It is not rated. It probably would be rated G, suitable for all audiences, although there is one risque part that is in this film that might challenge that. It's an hour and 37 minutes if you watch it without the commercials, two hours with the commercials. The cast includes Harvey Corman, Art Carney, Patty Maloney, and then names you might recognize a little bit better if you know Star Wars, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, Mickey Morton's in this film, B. Arthur, Anthony Daniels, of course, C-3PO, Diane Carroll, Paul Gale, James Earl Jones, at least his voice is in this, Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca, and the Jefferson Starship is in this as well. Steve Binder is the director, at least the credited director, David Akumba was also a director before him. Screenplay credited to Rod Warren, Bruce Valanche, Pat Proft, Leonard Rips, and Mitzi Welch. Now, the Star Wars Holiday Special was a two-hour made-for-TV musical variety show. Not necessarily a movie, although it is considered kind of a movie because it is, you know, a long-form two-hour thing and it all kind of revolves around one story. It was aired on November 17th, 1978. That was on CBS for its November sweeps period. It preempted the Friday night primetime shows like The Incredible Hulk that was in its first season and The New Adventures of Wonder Woman that was in its final season. Variety shows at the time, they were hot on TV in the 1970s. This effort would serve, they would hope anyway, as a ratings bonanza. You have the hottest cultural phenomenon of the previous year in front of as many eyeballs as they could get on a Friday night. Kids could stay up to watch TV. Older folks like variety shows, so it seemed like it was going to be a hit. And CBS wanted something to give them a huge leg up on their competition, while Star Wars creator George Lucas desired to help keep up the momentum of the hype to sell the initially unexpected but now heavily anticipated Star Wars merchandise coming out for Christmas in 1978. And people would end up also staying amped for the next movie in the series. And if things worked out, George Lucas might even be able to keep things going with a Star Wars TV spin-off series, and that was the ultimate win-win situation. It seemed like it just could not miss at all. 
The special was cultivated by its executive producers. Their names were Gary Smith and Dwight Hemian. They were a team known for their Emmy-winning variety show specials over the 60s and 70s. 20th Century Fox also produced this special, allowing filming to be done at the Burbank Studios. They pegged the Friday before the Thanksgiving holiday as the ideal target date. It was not only because it was network sweeps, but it was also the best time to sell spots to advertisers. Toys. Many companies wanting to lock into Star Wars mania. They wanted to get kids to beg their parents for the merchandise at Christmas. And the toy company that was set to produce the Star Wars action figures, Kenner, they put a lot of money into commercial placements for this special. Kenner even planned to create figures for Chewie's family who figure prominently in this special, but they ended up getting nixed. The show, not to spoil it before I get to talking about it a little bit more, it was ill-received. That's really what most people know about it. Advertiser interest, though, was so strong before it was put out that this intended one-hour show was only supposed to last an hour. It ended up getting padded out into a two-hour movie, complete with comical interludes and a self-contained 11-minute cartoon that some people considered to be the best part of this special. Now, the central plot of the Star Wars Holiday Special came from one of Lucas's early ideas, before he even made Star Wars. But it was an idea he had for Star Wars. In early drafts for Star Wars, Lucas ended up employing this framing device. It was supposed to be set on the Wookiee planet, where the Wookiee mother ends up reading a bedtime story to her son, entitled Star Wars, from a book on the shelf, and that would result in the story that she reads being played out in between. And the idea for this framing device, it ended up getting discarded from later scripts because Lucas and his team encountered a lot of difficulties in making the costume strictly for Chewbacca. They decided making costumes to portray a whole planet full of Wookiees was going to overly complicate an already ambitious production. So they ended up nixing that whole idea and just concentrated solely on Chewbacca being the only Wookiee. Now, for the holiday special, Lucas revived that Wookiee planet idea into this new story. It would have a holiday tie-in as a means to bring the rest of the main characters to appear. Lucas's original storyline centered more around Chewbacca than what ends up being seen in the final product. In the original script Lucas had, Chewie comes home to see his family for the galactic celebration of Life Day. It was going to be hosted on the Wookiee home planet this time. The Empire, they were wary of the celebration because they feared that it might unite the factions of the Resistance, and so they tried to find a way to shut it down. There's a galactic trader who visits the home of the Wookiees to sell the family some goods, while Chewie's son, uh, his son's name is Lumpy, it's a shortened nickname, kind of like Chewie, he ends up stowing away on the trader's starship, and he makes his way to the cantina in Mos Eisley that was featured in Star Wars. And afterward, Lumpy is set to return home on another starship, bringing entertainment to the life day extravaganza. However, the Empire manages to infiltrate the ship to stop the celebration, and that causes eventually Luke and Leia to intervene to successfully get the ship to its destination. In its early development phase, Lucas was involved with a variety of meetings trying to nail down the concept to the network crew. He even crafted a 25-page booklet that provided a lot of the backstory of the Wookiees, their homeworld. It included Chewbacca and each member of his family. Once he felt satisfied that this television crew knew what was expected, he ended up leaving the project and he wanted to focus his attention on the script for Raiders of the Lost Ark and especially his next feature in the original Star Wars trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back. And to help with the production, Lucas 
allowed CBS to utilize unused footage from Star Wars, as well as Star Wars costumes and props and sound effects and music and whatever other items that were associated with the 1977 film that they needed. And all of these ideas were handed to screenwriter Leonard Rips. Lenny Rips fleshed out Lucas's story into the script, trying to satisfy its intended one-hour runtime. But from there, producers Ken and Mitzi Welch, they began to alter the story. They tried to minimize all of the time spent with Chewbacca and his family. And they did that because Wookiees did not speak any language that was intelligible to the viewing audience. So trying to minimize Wookiee dialogue was deemed to be best. They set up the Wookiee characters primarily in the beginning of the show. And then the story could shift to Wookiees using their technology to try to talk to other characters that we knew from Star Wars and to entertain themselves by watching programming involving the celebrity talent that they brought on board. Now, the story in the completed script, the one that you could see if you end up watching the Star Wars Holiday Special, it involves Chewbacca's family living in a giant treehouse. The exterior of the treehouse uses some early conceptual art that was made for Star Wars from Ralph McQuarrie. The planet, as we know, the Wookiee planet is called Kashyyyk, but in the special, it's either called Wookiee Planet C. It's also referred to as Kazook in the script and the promotional materials of the time. The family trio includes Chewbacca's wife Mala, his father Itchy, and his son Lumpy. Uh, Chewbacca is returning to see his family for Life Day, which is like a mix of Thanksgiving and Christmas on Earth if you view it through the late 70s New Age prism of celebrating galactic peace and harmony. However, Chewie is delayed by an Imperial cruiser that's in the vicinity. They're performing a blockade that keeps the Millennium Falcon from its destination. And down on the Wookiee planet, stormtroopers are also invading homes and placing the locals under a strict curfew. And all Chewie's family can do to bide their time is to use their technology to entertain themselves with cartoons and acrobats and sultry women of fantasy and Jefferson Airplane, I guess, while they wait. David Akamba, the first director for this film, he was a former fraternity brother for Star Wars publicity supervisor Charles Lippincott from his and also George Lucas's days at USC Film School, even though Akamba and Lucas did not know each other at that time. He was brought in to direct. He had directed uh, the first TV rock concert special for PBS called Welcome to the Fillmore East. And then he also directed an acclaimed 1973 Canadian theatrical drama called Slipstream. But... He really was not fully prepared with how to direct a variety show for television. He found himself well over his head on what to do, and he wanted new and untested talent to be brought on board. He was very ambitious. He commissioned Nelvana, then Canada's largest animation house, to deliver an animated portion for the show. He was also friends with several members of Nelvana since their college days as well, so very connected with the people that he knew from film school. The special starts off in its first 10 minutes, really confusing audiences. We follow Chewbacca's family. They're having full-on conversations in the Wookiee language, no subtitles, grunting and growling. And, you know, you, you've heard Chewbacca. You know exactly what he sounds like. And it's basically these characters doing that for like 10 minutes, up to 15 minutes, I guess. And that language developed by Star Wars sound designer Ben Burt. And this really forced audiences at that time to infer the topics through the interpretation of the body language and the tone of the growls. And this embarrassingly nonsensical chunk of drama, 
seems to go on forever if you're watching this, no doubt causing many who tuned in on that Friday night to end up tuning out and find something less aggravating to watch probably before the end of that sequence. The costumes for Chewbacca's family were done by then-unknown Stan Winston, very popular today, filling in for Stuart Freeborn, who designed the original Chewbacca costume. Freeborn was unavailable because he was working on Superman the movie at the time, and Winston, who had done pretty good costume and makeup work on The Wiz, did the best he could with the budget and the time frame he was allotted. Now, perhaps the best part of the holiday special, I alluded to it earlier, although it doesn't really connect to the rest of the story, is that cartoon by Novana entitled The Faithful Wookiee. The cartoon marks the first appearance ever of Boba Fett, albeit he's kind of a chattier version than we would see in Empire Strikes Back. The only part of the special that Lucas has deemed to this day to let the public continue to experience it was a special feature on the 2011 Blu-ray release of the Star Wars Complete Saga, although to access it, it's kind of an Easter egg. You have to do a few things. And you can look that up online if you happen to have that uh, box set. This also was the first of several notable animated productions that Novana would end up doing for Lucasfilm for the next decade, including in the mid-1980s, they produced animated shows, Droids and Ewoks. According to Akamba, he said he tried to bring in the then-unknown stand-up comic Robin Williams for a bit role, but the Welches, the producers, told Akamba that he needed to bring in talent audiences were familiar with and they were comfortable seeing on television. Basically, someone for older TV viewers who watched variety shows that might identify with them, even though they may not follow Star Wars or really what's going on in the stand-up comedy scene at the time. The Welches had more traditional music numbers that they wanted to be produced into this, and they wanted a combo to work with the established TV talent that they were bringing aboard, like B. Arthur and Diane Carroll. A combo was unfamiliar with the multiple camera placements that are used in television productions. He just wanted to be able to go in and zoom in with one camera and just capture it all like a movie would handheld and he was completely lost while shooting scenes in the most Eisley cantina with B. Arthur playing the sassy proprietor the cantina scene where B. Arthur ends up belting out this cabaret style number called goodnight but not goodbye it features a lot of the creatures that we saw in the similar scene done for Star Wars with a couple of new ones that were added by Rick Baker there was a lion man and a baboon man in full makeup that took several hours to apply. Most of the other cantina denizens wore big masks over their heads that were kind of cumbersome due to the heat of the television lighting, and it made it difficult to breathe with those heads on. There really was hardly a way for getting oxygen. Some of the actors ended up squeezing their masks between takes in order to try to bring in some fresh air to breathe to keep from passing out. Some actually did pass out. Akamba, he was a true blue rock and roll guy. He felt much more at home shooting Jefferson Starship for their musical number. Jefferson Starship here, without Grace Lick, emerges lip-syncing to their next intended single called Light the Sky on Fire. They were transformed into this holographic projection from Lumpy's Music Box. Unfortunately, because he was unaccustomed to how to work with special effects and the crew, Akamba grew frustrated, and he ended up quitting after that sequence was shot, and he requested that his name not be used in the credits, even if his footage ended up being used. Akamba ended up getting replaced by Steve Binder. He was a professional associate of executive producer Gary Smith, and known for directing highly successful variety shows for television. Steve Binder was a professional through and through, but he was not involved in the early discussions that they had with George Lucas, and he really was not familiar with the Star Wars backstory beyond what some of the outlines 
were that Lucas left behind. He just knew that this was a show that was already beyond its budget and the shooting schedule, and he needed to assure that it would come to a merciful and intact for television screenings. Now, Binder's primary mission was to shoot the film actors from Star Wars who needed plenty of begging and arm twisting to come aboard, especially Harrison Ford, who really was reticent for appearing. He eventually consented to do it so long as there was no singing or dancing on his part. Meanwhile, taking the opposite approach of Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher wanted to expand her repertoire in films and wanted people to see that she could sing. She said she would only do the special on the condition that she be allowed to sing a song. Even if the character of Princess Leia was not known to be a stage talent, she wanted to do this. And so Carrie Fisher is in this film, and she loses a lot of that British inflection that she gave to her character for Star Wars in favor of this laid-back Southern California delivery that was probably much more in keeping with how she really sounds. Unfortunately for Carrie Fisher, she was given a song that she personally despised. It had lyrics centering around Life Day, mostly to the tune of the Star Wars theme music. Fisher claims to have been drunk, maybe more, during her musical scene. That might explain why she spends the entire song holding on to Chewbacca as if she could not finish her number without stumbling otherwise. This was Mark Hamill's first screen appearance after he had suffered a car accident that left him somewhat facially disfigured. He had a lot of makeup on here. The makeup team worked overtime to try to cover up any scars, including putting mascara on Mark Hamill. He kind of looked like a man who was just a wig and maybe some jewelry away from trying to appear like he's in drag. Both Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher appeared to teleconference with Mala at separate times to assure her that Han and Chewie will make it to them soon. And not making an appearance from the original cast, core cast anyway, is Kenny Baker. He would typically be controlling things from within R2-D2. R2-D2 is in this film... He was kind of a remote control version of the droid that was used for the soul scene with Luke Skywalker, busy working on his X-Wing in the spaceship garage. So because they had a remote control version, they didn't ask Kenny Baker to appear. None of the original cast members get more than five minutes of total screen time, though. In a role that was created so that there would be someone who could translate into English what the Wookiees were saying to the Imperial troops during some part of this film, Art Carney, he's here playing a traitor named Sondan, who comes bearing gifts, including this aforementioned VR smut machine that presents Diane Carroll as Itchy's hot and heavy fantasy. Elements of this Sondan character were used later as the inspiration for Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back. Harvey Corman's in this film. He takes three separate roles. He plays a four-armed, that's someone with four arms, not with four arms, although he has four forearms. Julia Child-esque TV chef named Gormanda, whose special dish is Bantha Surprise. He also is this glitchy amorphian doing a lengthy video instruction on how to build an electronic translator. And I mean, it seems to go on in full. And he also plays Krellman, this hollow-headed patron in Akmina's cantina. B. Arthur gets her scenes with them. I used to, for some reason, confuse B. Arthur and Harvey Corman when I was a little kid. And I think I probably was very confused during that scene. While they are woefully out of place in the Star Wars universe... These actors do give their respective parts their professional all. I mean, they put out their best work here doing the best they can with almost nothing. Professional or not, I think nothing can really describe what I alluded to earlier, the worst scene of the film. Diane Carroll, she was cast here by the Welches for this musical number titled This Minute Now. She gets to entertain the adult males who are in the audience watching on the TV. 
playing this imaginary seductress who is manifested from a questionably lurid virtual reality contraption called a mind evaporator. And this virtual reality device taps into Itchy's deepest and perhaps most disturbing interspecies fantasies. You know, this Chewbacca's dad here is watching a porno and the other family's in the room with him, which is kind of interesting, I guess. This is actually not really pornographic. It's what censors would allow to pass for porn on this all-ages network special. By the time George Lucas checked in on the production again sometime later, it was far too late to do anything about it. He found the production so embarrassing that he made sure that when it was aired, his name was removed from the story credits, despite coming up with the seed of the idea early on. After it showed on television, Lucas went to great lengths to make sure that it would never be seen again, never allowing a rebroadcast on television, and he still refuses to this day to release it on any form of home video. Now, there are VHS bootleg copies that exist that were taped during that television showing from people who owned VCRs at the time. Those have cropped up for the curious over the years. People used to trade those in various Star Wars groups. Mostly, they were of low-quality recordings when they first aired. Today, though, you can get the special relatively easily. Just do a search on popular video sharing platforms and you'll find it pretty easily. Although these are really rips of those VHS bootlegs, so don't expect really high quality there. They're just watchable if you want to reminisce over what it was like to watch VHS tapes. Now, although the production was lavish for television, the attempt to score big with ratings ended up being a huge bust, and that was mostly because a large percentage of the estimated 13 million that tuned in dropped out not too long after it began, and probably because they couldn't understand Wookiees for the 12 minutes or whatever that they end up grunting at each other. It lost out to its competition on ABC, a run-of-the-mill episode of The Love Boat, and it was also beat in its second hour by the second part of a miniseries on Pearl Harbor called Pearl. The Star Wars Holiday Special ranked at the end of the whole season. It was the 346th highest-rated top primetime show that aired during that season. Really, really low. It was lower than reruns of The Jeffersons and Happy Days or Quincy. I mean, it really hemorrhaged viewers to the point where they didn't even get to count them for being there beyond the first commercial. A quote that was attributed to George Lucas claims that he wishes he could take a sledgehammer to every copy still in existence. Uh, Even if he didn't actually say this, he does claim to hate the movie, and he has ended interviews where people started discussing it. He doesn't want to even acknowledge that it exists, and he vowed to never again cede control of a property with his name on it to others without pervasive scrutiny. According to an interview done in 2010, Carrie Fisher requested a copy of the holiday special from George Lucas in exchange for her participation in that Star Wars DVD box set. She claims that she used it to play at parties at a point where she wanted people to leave. That may be a joke. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But in in watching it, you can instantly see why George Lucas feels the way that he does about it. I mean, Star Wars from 1977, that was a magical theatrical experience. There was a fairy tale full of awe and miracle set in outer space. Right after watching Star Wars for the first time, you really wanted to see it again. And a lot of people did. A lot of People probably went many, many times to go see it in the movie theaters. The holiday special, though, takes those same characters and those places that boys and girls were dreaming about since they saw them in 1977's original and makes them seem goofy or bland, and their situations are not exciting to watch in the slightest. In fact, most kids would probably be bored by this other than the fact that they're watching something from Star Wars. Now, other people may tell you that the special is best watched in smaller chunks. If you take in the entire 97 minutes all at once, it seems really disjointed and monotonous. But if you can take it for each particular bite, 
you'll probably find it much more entertaining. You can at least watch it until you grow bored with the side entertainment of the variety show delivery. It barely adheres to the main plot, so I don't even know if it's worth uh, trying to keep that in mind. However, you take each segment on its own, and it allows you to savor that uniquely tangy flavor of awful movie making at its most misguided, and therefore finding the hilarity to laugh at the end result because it's not witty enough to laugh with it. My wife had not seen that before. I ended up watching it alone because I didn't want her to endure it, but I did play for her just like a 10-second clip of the Wookiees and talking to each other because I was trying to describe it to her and she ended up laughing uproariously. I know she probably would not have stuck with it much more than those 10 seconds before she walked out of the room, though. The Star Wars Holiday Special, it had been meant to continue that momentum for the Star Wars franchise in the making, but it only threatened to kill it outright. You know, watching it again was never an option for most people, and watching it in full for the first time was also something that few ended up enduring, but it's about as close to being a unanimously bad film as you'll find among people but you know as with nearly all movies that are abysmally bad there is a sizable contingent of viewers who enjoy it specifically because it is so terrible and so mystifyingly absurd that it is very funny and very entertaining in an ironic fashion so as much as i could give it the lowest grade of one star out of four i will give it one and a half because it does have that entertainment value above and beyond it's kind of almost so bad it's good in many respects but some people choose to have it on the screen while they're listening to riff tracks on it or something like that or making fun of it with beers or other things that they might use to keep entertained with their buddies or whatnot if you're a completist or you're just curious i do recommend you seeking it out at least for a while and checking out what it has to offer one and a half stars is really the best and probably the best anybody should probably ever give the star wars holiday special as far as what I'm going to be covering next week, we're going to continue on with Star Wars. I don't think that this film I'm going to be reviewing next is worse than the Star Wars Holiday Special, but it's not a whole lot better. It's called Caravan of Courage, an Ewok adventure. It came out in 1984, one of two Ewok films made for television in the mid-1980s. So I will watch the first one coming up next week, Caravan of Courage from 1984, for the next episode. If you have your own thoughts on the Star Wars Holiday Special that you want to impart, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. You can go find all of my links, my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram, everything that you want. All of my presence on the internet you can find at my website, quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until next time, thanks so much for joining me on this trip around Kashyyyk and around the world in 80s movies. Good night, but not... Thanks.